You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Six Sense. Six Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With SixSense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose SixSense, visit SixSense.com. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We'd like to thank our continued supporters, Blue Apron and ZipRecruiter, for helping to make SpyCast possible. And we'd like to welcome Sherry's Berries to the SpyCast family. You'll be hearing more about these great companies later, but first, let's meet our guest. Welcome to another edition of the SpyCast Historian Roundtable, now with 50% less historians. We've decided to branch out to give the, let's call them lesser disciplines, some input as we try to figure out what the hell happened in 2016. And I know we were a full month into 2017, and most of the year-end retrospectives came out a month ago, but I'm happy we waited. Recording this in early December would have meant we would have missed some very interesting events. So here's the lineup. First, someone whose voice will seem familiar to longtime SpyCast listeners, Mark Stout, who's my immediate predecessor here at the Spy Museum, our third historian. He previously worked for 21 years in the national security community, including 13 years as an intelligence analyst for the State Department and then CIA. He's now director of the master's degree program in global security studies and also director of the graduate certificate in intelligence, both at Johns Hopkins University's Krieger School of Arts and Sciences, advanced academic programs here in Washington, D.C. Next, the sonorous, deep, sexy voice you will hear belongs to David Priest, who served during the Bill Clinton and George W. Bush administrations as an award-winning intelligence officer manager and daily intelligence briefer at the CIA, as well as a desk officer at the State Department. He is the author of the acclaimed bestseller, The President's Book of Secrets, The Untold Story of Intelligence Briefings to America's Presidents from Kennedy to Obama. And you can actually hear a conversation between David and our executive director, Peter Ernest, on a SpyCast back in April of 2016. Thankfully serving to counterbalance some of the testosterone in this room is the fearless Allie Watkins, who covers soldiers and spies as a national security correspondent for BuzzFeed News. She worked previously for Huffington Post and McClatchy, where as a college student, she helped to break the story of CIA surveillance of the Senate over CIA torture and enhanced interrogation. Allie and I sat down for our own SpyCast back in September 2015, Definitely worth a listen. So thank all of you for joining me here today. And they just did a, a fist bump, a terrorist fist bump mm. in the middle of the table. So 2016 was quite a year. Lots of people died. There was an election in case you missed that. The Russians are back at it. Terrorism still exists. And there were some important anniversaries that are worth discussing. So lots to talk about. And the list of topics I sent out to the team here originally had way too much on it. This would be a three-hour podcast. We tried to hit up everything of consequence. 
So as much as Columbia's peace with FARC and the Panama Papers interests me, among other things, there will be things we just don't get to. So write your nasty emails another day. So with that said, let's start with a story that was huge in the news, huge. but has been somewhat overtaken by recent events, and that is the Apple versus SBI, FBI battle that took place near the beginning of the year. If you remember, it was because of the San Bernardino shooter whose iPhone was locked, the Apple uh, iPhone, FBI wanted to open it up, and Apple said, uh, go to hell. Uh, so, Ali, I want to, you covered this, or uh, areas dealing with it when it was happening. So I'm trying to, like, it does not feel like that was, I can't believe that was only a year ago. Yeah, beginning honestly. of 2016, yeah. It seems like it was about since 2008. Yeah, right. I'm trying to page back <laughs> in the archive, and I'm not, I'm, like, having to dust off a lot of thoughts here. I'll help you. Apple is a large technology company. That's a good start. Yes, thank I you. forgot that part. Um... I mean, I think this is going to be... I mean, the, the way it was kind of set up, the Apple FBI thing, it started with the San Bernardino issue. And it's. I think we've seen, even in recent months, this is going to continue. I mean, that was kind of the start where I think the fight over government access to private communications kind of spilled into the public sphere. But every incident since has contained some element of um, like that argument yeah i mean there's there's a a news story the other day about uh countries forcing people to use their fingerprint to open up their phones and so a lot of uh, the conversation is when you go overseas turn your phone off because when you turn it back on you have to put your code in and this is the outreach of this earlier issue Mm -hmm. so mark you're you're dying to talk and i can see you about how this is nothing new uh, because as a historian here uh, you, you want to just quash these ideas that this is kind of a new controversy. Um, well, yeah. I'm, I mean, certainly the there's been a long-running battle uh, between, and battle is maybe even the wrong word, but um, contention between the, the public and the government over, you know, who, where is the dividing line between what is, you know, private and what the government has access to. I think what the government's concerned about here is the proposition that with some of these uh, strong encryption techniques and that sort of thing, that there may ultimately be um, domains of information which are utterly beyond um, you know the the government's ability to to touch. I mean, even with court orders, even if we you know think you're a you're a spy and a child molester and you know everything else, um, you know can't get there. And is that a is that a position um, that we want to be in? Um, I think reasonable people will will differ on this, um, but um, that, to my mind, is the big difference here. Actually, historically, yes, in in some sense, this is a continuation of long running sort of battles, but. From the government point of view, the stakes are getting more dire, right? Because, um, you know, potentially stuff is utterly going to be utterly untouchable at a technological level um, if there aren't, you know, legal remedies. Right. And you can come out wherever you like, you know, where, where you think that, that should be resolved. But, but, but the, 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 the stakes are getting higher. David, isn't there an argument to be made for the idea of um, if you put backdoors into encryption, that makes all of us less safe? Uh, I mean, that's, that's obviously Apple's argument here is that, uh, yeah, sure, maybe you can find out what the San Bernardino shooter was up to and maybe some linkages there. But if all of a sudden Apple is instituting backdoors, sure, the FBI is supposedly on our side, mm-hmm. but doesn't that open things up to potential foreign adversaries or other or hackers, as we will get to eventually, right. to uh, infiltrate into our phones, which should be secure, we would hope. And to keep this in the 2016 theme, I'll go to something that Mike Hayden said publicly in 2016 about this. You would think, as a former 
NSA chief, CIA chief, that he would have been on one side of this. Well, not exactly. He was out there saying, not so fast. Let's really think about what we need to protect here for the long term, not just for the short term. And he did not come down saying an absolute right to everything. He came down saying there's some very legitimate concerns here. We need to protect some things for future cases we can't even predict yet. Well, and I think that's, again, historian going back to you, Mark, the idea of how things evolve uh, so quickly. I mean, now more than ever with technology, and again, Ali can jump in on this also, we don't, we can't anticipate what's going to be a key privacy issue or a key government security issue in, you know, six months, let alone, you know, five, ten years from now. Uh, and setting precedent for things that we don't quite understand is problematic. I talked to Ted Lieu, who's a member of Congress from California over the summer, and he was actually one of the ones that was going after James Comey big time during these hearings. And he basically said something like, we can't, if we start setting precedent now without understanding what the hell we're doing, we've got real problems. And the fact is Congress, and this alley, you can definitely, because you deal with these people every day, a lot of Congress doesn't quite get these issues the way they probably should. No, I think, actually, you hit on something that I was going to mention, that, that so much of this Apple-FBI debate is a matter, is an issue of precedent. And, and I think the, the notion of precedent is a conversation that's considered wonky and very contained to D.C. Like, if you talk to people outside Washington, outside kind of the Beltway mindset, it's a, a given. Of course, the FBI and law enforcement officials should have access to a pedophile's phone. Like, that shouldn't be a question. That's not the heart of this debate it, it's if they have access to something if they have access to a criminal's phone through a certain avenue that then allows some type of precedent for them to have access to your information um so i think the the notion of precedent is such an important central theme to the encryption debate and it's way too often lost in just the surface like should the fbi have access to a terrorist phone that's not the question at the heart of this uh, yeah i think that's absolutely right and we are as you observed in a period where the rate of technological change is faster than i can at least begin to comprehend um and these technological changes are having deeply profound both social and also uh, you know effects and also have um, profound legal implications and um, the government national security community legal community uh, all, all the rest of it is having to adjust to this and making um, decisions which often legal literally legally are precedents and, and 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 in many other cases are just sort of de facto sort of setting cultural expectations about what the government will and won't do um, and and where those dividing lines between privacy and, and 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 government information are that will live with us for a very long time and you know hopefully many of these precedents will be good ones but I will guarantee you that many of them from the perspective of you know um, 10 years, let alone 50 or 100, which is how long these things are going to last, will turn out to have been, well, gosh, really wish we'd been able, able to think that through better at the right. time, but we just didn't understand what was going on. And the it's, things are changing so fast. And the people making these laws are not the lawmakers themselves. Because, I mean, they are physically voting on the laws, but no one, and I say no one, 95% of Congress doesn't understand these issues at a technical level. So they're counting on their staffers. They're counting on people at think tanks and wonks to essentially tell them what the law should be. So in many ways, because these are so technologically advanced, because there are things that most lawmakers who have a business background or even a legal background or they're farmers or what have you, don't get, all of a sudden we are handing off lawmaking and policymaking power to unelected staffers. Uh, and that might be the way, and both, both David and Ali obviously work very close with uh, the, the Hill, uh, maybe that's the way it's been done for a long time, but 
that to me seems problematic, uh, especially in an age like Mark was talking about where this could be something we're dealing with for decades. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that I think anybody who covers the Hill can tell you that staffers generally know more than their bosses. So I don't think that's a terrible thing that they are kind of the ones in, in the dirt on it. But I think the notion of like cybersecurity generally and encryption generally being a free for all, like anytime I write anything regarding cyber encryption, my mentions are like blown to hell for the day of people telling me like 5 million different definitions for the words I use. So part of it is like a lack of a clear, um, coherent playbook on some of these buzzwords that would like, for example, backdoors, right. you know, people who throw that around half the time don't even know what they mean. And there's a lot of different definitions to that that people, you know, could, you know, vouch for in a valid way. Um, so I think that's part of the, the incoherence. Just to, to give some sense of the, of the, you know, longevity of some of these precedents. I mean, there are, there's a court decision dating back to the late 19th century that seriously impacts um, um, how um, covert operators uh, can or cannot have, uh, you know, recourse to the courts if they feel the government has wronged them. The Espionage Act of 1917 governs immense amounts of the, you know, of, of what goes on. It's, you know, what 100 years old this year. Um, the state's privilege, the state privileges, um, state secrets privilege rather dates, uh, if memory serves, the 1950s, the early post World War II era. Um, a lot of the law dealing with, uh, you know, wiretaps and warrants and these sorts of things, that law started getting written and those precedents started getting set in the 1960s, right? Um, and all of these things are still with us. Um, and so, yeah, so these decisions that are being made now for, you know, even with the best of intentions, maybe even if they're the right decisions today, are going to hang around like athlete's foot. <laughs> So let's keep on that theme to a degree because we talk about terrorism with San Bernardino. Uh, ISIS around the world seems to be on a retreat militarily, and, and uh, Ali covers this, and Mark and David and I can actually talk about some of the military side or the intelligence side, which is great. ISIS is losing around the world, but that certainly doesn't mean that the threat of uh, terrorist attacks has gone down, particularly this whole lone wolf idea of things inspired by ISIS. And again, it may feel like it's forever ago. But the Orlando shooting was in 2016, as was the Nice uh, guy driving a truck through the crowd um, and killing a bunch of people there. Uh, is it likely throughout looking historically, but also uh, contemporarily, uh, is it likely that as this organization, if we want to call them that, begins to lose ground territorially, that they have to reach out other ways and it becomes even potentially more dangerous for us here in the West? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I guess I'd put a, actually, in a weird way, kind of a positive spin on this so-called lone wolf phenomenon. And in a lot of ways, it actually reflects the um, strength of Western um, intelligence and security and law enforcement services. But it is, it is actually extraordinarily difficult to mount you know, big plots like 9-11. Right. Um, and the only way, not the only way, but the best way to optimize your chance of, uh, you know, getting a successful attack launched at all is to do it with, you know, few or preferably only one actual person involved because those communications, whatever they are, are vulnerable, right? The moment you start talking about what you're going to do, it may be your friend you're talking to or it may be that's, you know, low tech or it may be that somebody's intercepting your telephone conversations, but that communication, that conspiring is what makes you vulnerable. So, so as horrible as these things are, and they are appalling, um, in some ways it's, you know, it comes from, from the terrorists out of a place of weakness against the national security state. And let me put in a plug here for the analysis behind 
some of those actions that have worked because when the Islamic State first started, when they declared the caliphate, it was a new thing in many ways. Yes, pieces of it had been understood and had been analyzed, but that's been, that's been years now. And the analysts working on this in the various agencies have had a whole lot of collection coming in and a whole lot of opportunity to build on what they knew already. So there's a much more complete picture of what ISIS really is and what its branches or affiliates really are and how they relate. That kind of thing has a cumulative effect that makes it easier for the law enforcement and the other, if you will, counterterrorism measures to be effective. To build a baseline of understanding. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, at the risk of sounding like the alarmist in the room, um, I think that, you know, the notion, and Comey has talked about this publicly occasionally, that when you, when you eventually kind of annihilate that, like, nexus regionally and geographically, you obviously are going to have this diaspora that kind of spreads out. Um, and I think just geographically, the U.S. is more protected from that than, than a Europe. Um, but I think it's, it's a fair assumption that, you know, as we make more military gains against ISIS, you're going to see a, a bigger push towards these lone wolf attacks. Um, and I mean, for that, not even necessarily lone wolf attacks, but the you know the directed attacks like a Paris, right. um, which I, th- I think also happened this year, maybe or maybe I'm backwards. I think it was like um, December of 15. Okay, I could be wrong. But, um, but also, I think um, as Mark mentioned about um, how. When communications come up, you know, they're intercepted. There's a better chance we'll catch people. Um, I think there's also a running concern about what intelligence sharing is going to look like, um, whether within the EU, between the U.S. and the EU, um, because there's been a lot of holes there for the last, you know, even in the last year. We've seen that there have been several people who carried out lone wolf attacks. I think I might be wrong on this. It was the, the guy in Germany or something. It might not have been. There's too many attacks for me to keep straight, um, unfortunately. But, the, you know, there was just recently an issue where someone who carried out an attack um, had been flagged for right. intelligence agencies like twice before and had been let go. Um, so I think we're seeing that there's certainly – that this is a, a, a leaky safety net. Um, and I think that any any concerns over that are being exacerbated by – this greater 2016 theme of dissolution of Western constructs, right. EU intelligence sharing, NATO, right. et cetera. I, I mean, you have to look at it as a double-edged sword in many respects in that uh, knock on everything wood and anything else, the, the idea of 19 hijackers coordinating an attack like 9-11 today seems far-fetched. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't God, I hate saying that because you know it's it's looking everything you can possibly look in the mouth. You're not I mean you're not dealing with an yeah. Al Qaeda though. That's a right. fair. Well, but I mean it's it's more the idea of a coordinated uh, communicated attack because communications now have been so compromised by not just NSA but GCHQ and everybody else that people know that they the minute they talk to somebody else unless they're whispering in someone's ear that the likelihood is an intelligence agency is listening into it. So there is that. That is a benefit. But that perhaps means that you don't get this massive attack, but you might get more people who are pissed off finding a gun somewhere and walking into somewhere and killing 10 people uh, to where we feel less safe walking down the street. But in essence, we might be more safe than we've ever been before. And it's one of those interesting conversations. We'll hear more of this conversation in a moment. But let me take a quick minute to tell you about Blue Apron. As many of you know by now, I am an atrocious cook to the point of setting fire to a stove trying to cook spaghetti, something most seven-year-olds can pull off without involving the fire department. I'm also someone that used to never have anything green in my diet that wasn't a Skittle or a Crunch Berry. 
I can honestly say that Blue Apron helped me change this for the better. Now, I can't say that I'm much better cooked than I was, but Blue Apron makes things so easy I can cook something without a fire extinguisher as an essential kitchen utensil. Blue Apron's mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone, and they are the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. Blue Apron achieves this by supporting a more sustainable food system, setting the highest standards for ingredients, and building a community of home chefs. Blue Apron has established partnerships with over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers across the United States. As a result of this, seafood is sourced sustainably under standards developed in partnership with the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch. Beef, chicken, and pork come from responsibly raised animals, and produce is sourced from farms that practice regenerative farming. Blue Apron can be delivered in 99% of the continent of the United States and 99.5% of food deserts. And because Blue Apron ships the exact amount of each ingredient required for a recipe, they're reducing food waste. Check out some of the interesting featured upcoming meals you can get on Blue Apron. Cashew chicken stir-fry with tango mandarins and jasmine rice. Roasted pork with apple walnut and farro salad. Crispy barramundi with quinoa and roasted carrot salad. Urda noodle soup with miso and soft-boiled eggs. And if this doesn't sound like your neck of the woods, Blue Apron is known for their variety. You can choose from a variety of new recipes each week or let Blue Apron's culinary team surprise you. Recipes are not repeated within a year, so you'll never get bored. They're also flexible. You can customize your recipes each week based on your preferences. Blue Apron has several delivery options, so you can choose what fits your needs. And there's no weekly commitment, so you only get deliveries when you want them. Did I mention it was easy? Each meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card and pre-portioned ingredients that can be prepared in less than 40 minutes. So check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash spycast. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash spycast. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. So let's, let's, that's a wonderful issue, uh, make everyone happy. Let's talk about dead people. Um, this year we lost, of course, everyone from Prince to David Bowie to George Michael, uh, RIP. Uh, but, uh, I'll give you a, a nickel if you can connect Prince to intelligence or espionage. I, I wasn't going to do that, uh, and Nickel's not going to, you know, he's from Minnesota, he's short, I, I don't know, I got, I, I got nothing. <laughs> got nothing. Um, we can party like it's 2001, I don't know. Anyway, uh, Let's not try that. Let's talk about Fidel, though. Uh, I'm a native Miamian. Um, to give a little backstory, I, for the last 10 years, I've lived in Washington. Every single Thanksgiving, I've gone home for Thanksgiving. This year, I decided not to, and it's the year Fidel Castro dies. Uh, my mom will never let me live that down. That's what happens when you don't come home for Thanksgiving, Vince. But Was there a link between those two? Yes. Yeah. Yes. We don't know where he was. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was in Cuba earlier this year. Uh, uh-huh. And everywhere we went, uh, they, they stopped us and made sure there were still four of us in the car. Because I guess they thought I was going to roll off into the woods and go try to assassinate Fidel. So you never got close to Fidel's beard during your visit. Never got close to his beard. Right. So I, I want to attack this Fidel issue from two things. One, I have stout laughing now. Uh, one is how this changes things now. Uh, but also historically kind of look at the, the Cuban intelligence service. Because first and foremost, they may be the best that ever did operate it. Now they've got some help because they had one 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 enemy, you know, one particular target they were focusing on. Uh, but they no one did it better, perhaps. So let's start with how Fidel, does Fidel's death change anything? All right, great. So let's move on to history. Um, that's, no, David, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I think I think Fidel's death changes his personal involvement 
in the government of Cuba. That's I'm going to go out on a limb there. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Although not as much as you'd think, because it's mm-hmm. still people. You know, what would Fidel think? I was actually interested in the flip side of this. When he died, I went back and looked at <clears throat> some of the daily intelligence reports that had been produced for John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson about Cuba, because all of those have been declassified with minor redactions. And it was it was fun to see the level of concerns that were being brought to the president's attention about Fidel Castro, about the Cuban government, about e- exactly what small boat attacks that were being done by exiles that were near Cuba. And they were bringing these to the president's attention at the same time. There were missile crises elsewhere, right. and there was Berlin and all of these other issues going on. That level of presidential attention to this man and to that country, while not unprecedented, certainly is in that top tier of nearly obsessive interest in the intelligence assessments uh, about him. Well, so, so Vince, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll turn this around a bit. I mean, you've been acting uh, primarily as interviewer here, but at the table, you're probably the Cuba expert. I mean, what do you think about that question? Did, did this change anything? I, I think at this point, uh, Fidel was just a figurehead. And in many respects, this might allow uh, for changes that had nothing to do with intelligence. It might allow for political changes. Uh, it really depends on what the Trump administration does. And that's the first time I think I put those words together. And I kind of shook a little bit when I said it, but that's a whole other point. Um, if they roll back some of the, the thawing of the relationship between the United States and Cuba, but now with Fidel out of the picture, you might see the, uh, the exile community starting to not have that boogeyman anymore. Uh, they don't like Raul all that much either, uh, but that kind of that, that Fidel as a symbol is no longer there. Uh, but I think he did, for a, at the end, he didn't really do anything. He kind of, he was too weak. But there's a great story. We had a, a defector in the mid-1980s, 1987, that came over and uh, pulled the wool out from over our eyes because we had thought we had had a pretty good idea of what was happening in Cuba. And it turns out from like 1963 through 1987, maybe it's 62 to 87, it's a good 25-year period not a single American asset we thought we had working in Cuba was actually working for us. Every single one of them had been turned by Cuban intelligence. The East Germans did something similar to us. But, but I mean, that is remarkable yeah, for really us. Is. I mean, the East Germans are backed by the KGB. They're massive. The Stasi was huge. Yeah. The DGI, which is Cuban intelligence, was not very big. I mean, it was big per capita for a small little island nation. And again, they had one foreign target. And imagine but if two former ex-CIA people on the other side of the table, how easy would life be if the CIA only had one country it was worried about? It would be either exceptionally easier or exceptionally more difficult, depending well, on the nature of that target. But it does make your, your focus easier, and it allows you to explore all avenues related to that focus. That is a huge asset, so to speak. Well, and with, I mean, can't get into details, but I mean, I think any um, intelligence, American intelligence officer who's worked with um, liaison, i.e. foreign intelligence services that are, you know, cooperating with us in one way, shape, or form, has had this experience of, you know, sitting across the table from, you know, intelligence officers from another country that, that is not a great intelligence power, but boy, they know every rivet and screw on, you know, I'm making this up, but on the Russian tanks that are, you know, uh, deployed opposite their, their their border or that sort of thing in, to a level of detail that we would never be able to touch. I mean, you would think of like a Baltic state about the Russians or Finland uh, about the Russians. Yes. Hypothetically. Hypothetically. That would make a ton of sense there. So, Ali, I, from, from the chatter on the Hill and from the people in the IC that you've been talking to lately, when Castro died or in, in 2016 when this thaw was really happening – was there a conversation about how things would change intelligence-wise? Um, you know, my I have to be honest here. My 
focus on Cuba has kind of been limited to Guantanamo stuff. And cigars. So, Be honest. And cigars. Uh, yeah. And, and, um, moving on. Um, See, we're not a big fan of honesty here. You could have just made up. Yeah, no, I've talked to I prefer everyone. the rum. Um, yes. But, you know, as far as the, the conversations on Cuba, that was, from my perspective, at least as an intelligence reporter, that was more um, a state conversation that was happening than an intelligence conversation. Um, as far And I think part of that is kind of um, what David said about, you know, how involved was Fidel really mm-hmm. in like the day-to-day intelligence activities of Cuba? Um, as far as just broadly, what I think is going to be interesting moving forward um, is that you know the the links between Cuban intelligence and Russian intelligence have been you know the stuff of legend mm-hmm. for a long time, um, but we have seen talk about um, you know the, the Russians reopening a spy base mm-hmm. there, an intercept base, um, and I think where that kind of goes from here is going to be interesting. Um, and, and whether that um, concern is more in theory than an actual practical worry we should have is, is something. Um, and, you know, as far as the issue of Guantanamo, that's just kind of up in the air for everybody right now. But I, I will add, like, a really interesting anecdote that people don't kind of connect the two things. There's this really wild expat community that lives on Guantanamo um, at the naval base there. It's like, it's, it's kind of, you're like driving through this, this barren landscape and suddenly there's like a, a Florida retirement community, <laughs> um, just off the street. And it's, it's incredible. I mean, these people are, um, you know, who, who fled during, um, the, the war in Cuba and somehow in a whole variety of strange, sketchy ways made it onto American soil and, and sought, uh, asylum. Um, and they're all still there. A lot of them are still there. Mm-hmm. And they just have these most incredible stories. And I visited them, um, I guess it was about a month or so before Fidel died, um, but it, it was certainly kind of this idea of like the, the boogeyman. He, he still was very much right. considered that. Uh, the fun story about Guantanamo is that we've paid the Cubans rent every year since we opened the base, and since they've never since never 1960 or 59, they haven't cashed the checks. Um, and it's grandfathered in, so we're basically paying them like next to nothing for it. But that in protest, they haven't cashed the check. So I'd love to get my hands on one of them. If anybody has a Guantanamo U.S. Treasury check, the International Spy <laughs> Museum would love, love to have it. So we're going to – look, we're going to get to the election. Be cool. But we want to hit up two quick anniversary conversations because in 2016 was the 25th anniversary of two pretty momentous events. For many of us uh, – Desert Storm, the beginning of two, uh, 1991, uh, was our first real example of uh, war post-Vietnam. I want to forget Grenada and Panama and these other things. Uh, I was not old enough really to understand what was going on. I was 15. Ali, I made the joke, was not even a zygote at that point. Um, but David was already like in his fourth decade at CIA, and, and Mark was already losing his hair. So... Let, what am I, let, a vampire? Yeah. Shh. So I, w- I want to ask a, a little bit about these, the, this issue. But it's also 1991 at the end of the year. So Desert Storm was January 1991 and December 25th, 1991, was the last time the Soviet flag flew over the Kremlin. It came down and the Russian flag replaced it, the dissolution of the Soviet Union at the end of the year. Two really interesting anniversaries that we want to talk briefly about. Yeah, let's hit Desert Storm first. Uh, there's a couple of fascinating parts about it from the intel perspective. Of course, you had a president who was the first and so far only president who was former director of the CIA and somebody who had been receiving daily intelligence briefings as vice president for eight years and had continued those as president. An exceptionally well-prepared president for a world crisis. 
But he didn't use that intelligence to make ad hoc decisions based on the instinct that grows from such experience. Instead, that administration started what we basically take for granted today in terms of foreign policy decision-making, which is the process of what's called the Deputies Committee and the Principals Committee meetings, where the deputies of each department in national security get together to hash out positions, present them to the principals or the heads of the agencies, who then help make recommendations to the president. We could do this or we could do this. Here's where the balance of us uh, lie. That didn't exist as such before that. That was an invention in the Bush administration. All of them exceptionally well-informed on intelligence through a process of daily briefings that really started in the Reagan years but took off for Bush 41. So you get to the point where they're prosecuting a war. They are extremely comfortable with intelligence to the point that when there was a dispute over the intelligence, what's going to happen when we shift from the air war to the ground war? We need to have this percentage of the Iraqi armor basically taken out. And there were disagreements on that within the community. The defense analysts disagreeing with CIA analysts, it went all the way to the president. As a former Navy pilot, he understood pilot euphoria. He understood that the claims from the field might not be backed up when they could look at it with more, a little more careful thought. And he went ahead and did what he thought was the right policy instead of using that as an excuse. That's the real sign of somebody who's comfortable enough with intelligence and has absorbed it for a while. So an important intelligence lesson, even though it was more than 25 years ago now. Well, the U.S. Army didn't really need all that help. Who, uh... yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead, Mark. Says, says the former tanker. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I'll, I'll, I didn't know that, actually, about the, sort of the origins of the, the PCs and the DCs. Um, it yeah. might be an alternative fact. We'll have to check Ooh. it later. <laughs> Um, Desert Storm is also important in an intelligence sense, too, in that, and, and, and David was touching on aspects of this, um, it was a conflict in which the U.S. Uh, intelligence community um, took what for it was pretty bold steps in terms of providing national level, you know, top secret, burn before reading, don't even admit you have it kind of intel support to commanders um, even right. comparative by the net from the national perspective, comparatively low-level commanders out in the field, um, a, a trend which has only continued and, and and deepened, you know, massively since then. And also, it was a war in which, in, in another part of that, it wasn't just push; it was also um, uh, pull. Uh, Norman Schwarzkopf, the you know the commander uh, of the uh, of the uh, coalition forces, complaining about the intelligence support uh, that he thought he wasn't getting and how, you know, Washington was getting it wrong and all these things. Um, and, I, you know, every conflict, and unfortunately there have been, you know, many of them since, but every conflict since then has seen a further deepening of that, you know, uh, integration between the, you know, the shooters in the field and the in entire intelligence apparatus. My, my favorite... I mean, it was a much more remote relationship, say, back right. in Vietnam. My, my favorite intel story from Desert Storm is an open source story. And it was when they were planning the big Hail Mary left hook, the idea of we – and it's a great – as an aside, it's a great counterintelligence story when you talk about air superiority was our number one counterintelligence asset, was making sure they had no eyes in the sky. But anyway, we're going to make this big swing out into the desert and push into Iraq from uh, an area that they weren't expecting. The problem was no one had done any mapping of this area of Iraq. Uh, so the Pentagon kind of scrambled to figure out, well, where are the wadis? Where are the roads? Where are the things? And a very enterprising mid-level officer at the Pentagon schlepped his way down to the Library of Congress <laughs> and pulled out old archaeological maps of Iraq from, like, 1905. And they had all the wadis. They had all the, you know, all the, the kind of dips and topography of that part of Iraq. And they 
made lots of very quick photocopies, and that was the maps that we used to do the big, huge Hail Mary left hook going to Iraq. And it's one of these great open source stories of where you can find intelligence in some of the rarest, oddest places. Well, and talking about going back to the old files to enable uh, operations in Desert Storm, another example of that uh, was, and it's not well remembered these days, but the, the deception uh, where the Marines were you know, pretending to make an amphibious landing in Kuwait that, in fact, wasn't ever going to be made, but it was to, to draw off the Iraqis. Um, uh, back when I was had Vince's job, uh, our executive director, Peter Ernest, did a, did a podcast, did a spycast with the Marine planner for that deception. And um, they went back to, you know, experience with the British deceptions in World War II, enabled by the Double Cross system mm-hmm. and Ultra and all that, um, and studied those as they were putting together this deception plan for the, for the, for the Marine Corps uh, amphibious landing that never happened. We'll have more of this in a second, but now I want to tell you about ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter is a company that was founded by a group of guys who work in the tech industry and with startups and realized that the absolute worst thing about running an organization was the process of hiring people. Look, we open the new museum next year, and we're hiring people to work on exhibit development, research, and more. And we will eventually need to hire a lot more people as we get closer to the opening. When we need to hire a new person, we want to get the very best people, and who doesn't? But the process seems never-ending, and it can take a huge amount of time, time we don't have as we try to run our current operation while planning the content for the new museum. The people at ZipRecruiter have the solution. So are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Posting your job in one place isn't enough to find quality candidates. If you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job in all the top job sites, and now you can. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 200-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. Find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. There's no juggling emails or calls to your office. Quickly stream candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. So find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by Fortune 100 companies and thousands of small and medium-sized businesses. Right now, SpyCast listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash first. One more time to get it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash first. Uh, let me focus on now the, the second big 25th anniversary, and that's the fall of the Soviet Union. This arguably after 1989, which was uh, not seen coming by anybody at CIA, was another one of these events that, oh, crap, what just happened? There was a coup in the Soviet Union, and then all of a sudden, Boris Yeltsin's in charge. Um, Mark, you were a Russia-Soviet analyst. Um, yeah, technically, I was a Soviet analyst then. Yeah. yeah so let's let's. Uh... I just remember the the <laughs> night of the coup, actually, uh, and I was I, I was at home, and uh, I, I heard on the radio. I, I, I my recollection is it was BBC, but I'm not sure that's actually true. But anyway, I heard on the radio this happened. This is like. You know, I, I work on Russian military or Soviet military stuff. Need to get get into the office, and I get into the office and see what's going on. And uh, and there are only one or two other people who've arrived yet um, in the middle of the night. And and I realize immediately that there's this particular colleague, uh, a woman I worked with named Toby, who needed to be in here. Like we need to get Toby in. Um, and so I called her, and it's I don't know exactly 1:30 in the morning or something. And her husband answers the phone, and like almost immediately just hangs it up again. He thinks it's a prank call. And I call him back, and I was like, can I do talk to... He hangs it up again. <laughs> Third time, it was like, this is Mark from the State Department. There's been a coup in Moscow. I need to talk to Toby. <laughs> and it was just like, oh. <laughs> and he hands it over to Toby. I'm like, Toby, you need to come in. <laughs> I mean, you would think that if you worked at that desk 
and you got a call at one thirty in the morning, there was something going on. But I, yeah. I digress. Mm-hmm. There's this mythology that persists about the end of the Cold War that it was a surprise. And, and let's be clear, it's really hard to predict coups. It's really hard to predict exactly when a person's going to take or not take an action when they haven't decided yet. But we have it from Bob Gates. Bob Gates has said that the agency's forecast of serious trouble ahead for the Soviet Union and the possibility of a coup against Gorbachev was good enough that it led them at the National Security Council to begin the contingency planning for that event two years before it happened. So there was some prediction there. You can, on the one hand, say, well, the analysts didn't get it right. They didn't call the date. They didn't say it exactly when it happened, although they got pretty damn close because they knew with the signing of the Union Treaty coming up, that was going to be a time for the hardliners to make their move. They did that pretty well. When it comes to the longer-term analysis, there's still disagreement about that. Some of the people back from the Reagan administration, like George Shultz, told me he felt this was a failure of the CIA. Others have said, no, you can look at the products. CIA has declassified some of these to point to it and say, they were picking all the variables right. They were getting the dynamics right. It just wasn't translated into a point prediction of two years from this date, right. the USSR will collapse. Well, and, and for heaven's sake, I mean, uh, and that's absolutely right. And, and there were um, numerous and vigorous independence movements um, across the Soviet Union, um, a, a number of which uh, led to violence and, and modest-scale wars, which was actually my primary focus at the time. Uh, there was Lithuania. Uh, there was uh, unpleasantness in Nagorno-Karabakh. I remember on another occasion having just within within INR, you know, delivering a, 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 a briefing memo to a, a senior in the department, which was a a list of Soviet military units that we believe are not responsive to Moscow control. I mean, this was not a healthy country. And you're right. Nobody said, you know, nobody predicted, oh, there's going to be a coup sometime in mid to late August. But, boy, bad stuff was going on in the Soviet Union. Well, I think people don't realize now, for a while, I mean, at least several hours, we didn't know who had control of the nuclear weapons inside the Soviet Union. Yeah, that was pretty exciting. I bet it was. (laughs) Yeah, I bet that was something... That made people sleep really well. But this whole time frame reminds me of one of my favorite stories regarding the President's Daily Brief and uh, intelligence delivery because it involves pancakes. And seriously, who does not love pancakes? pancakes. So Gates was up in Kennebunkport with President Bush. He they did not have a briefer travel from the CIA in those days to go with the president. So Bob Gates, as a former CIA analyst himself, was briefing and talking to the president about the PDB. And he remembers sitting on the porch looking out over the ocean and looking at this piece, which said there is likely to be a coup attempt before the treaty signing coming up. Well, the PDB concluded with this assessment that the anti-Gorbachev forces were going to act, and the president looked at Gates and said, should we take this that seriously? And Gates, using the PDB, said yes, and here's why. And it's one of those moments where you have a president sitting, eating pancakes with his deputy national security advisor, and predicting the end of this historic empire and how is it going to unravel based on this coup, that, that's quite a moment. The other, the other thing I, I remember that I just throw in here is I remember, uh, you know, the, when the Soviet Union finally officially ended and, and uh, uh, Gorbachev's uh, people hand over the, the Soviet uh, equivalent of the nuclear, nuclear suitcase, uh, which was called the Chagat. I mean, obviously, you know, I didn't work personally nuclear stuff, but I knew the people who did. Um, and, like, you know, what, what, what's inside of it and how does it work? And, you know, it, all that was, like, you know, obviously a big in, intelligence question. Um, and my recollection is that the day after Christmas, uh, there was – I remember the photo, and I believe it was published on the day after Christmas. There is a photo of Boris Yeltsin being briefed on how to use it. 
published by the wire services, and the photo shows the inside of the darn nuclear suitcase and where all the buttons are and everything. It was, holy cow. Yeah. You know, we are in a really different world now. If this, you know, holiest of all holy Soviet slash Russian secrets is literally on the front page of the Seattle Times, which is where I saw it. And, and why that's interesting, those of you out in Listenerville, is all the stuff you've seen in the movies where they've opened up a briefcase and there's a couple buttons the president pushes, that's not what it looks like. Uh, so having in, insight into that is pretty interesting. Yeah, you can think of awesome. all the all the different ways people are trying to figure out how to jam it and, and spoof it and everything <laughs> and else. With it. What do you remember about 1991, Allie? Uh, I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> Only October. Oh, I can add like a hot take here, oh, which yeah, I think yeah, is actually takes. kind of interesting. Um, th- I think this is a really interesting. Is it about pancakes? Pli- there are no pancakes involved. Okay, no pancakes. Sorry, I'm guys. <laughs> um, I think it's a very interesting place to be in as a. Um, I mean, I'm not even, like, technically a green national security reporter in this town. I've been working here for about five years. Um, But there is, like, a generation of of us who have been here for for a decent amount of time but don't remember covering national security issues relating to the Cold War. Um, And it's become a really challenging place as a reporter, I think, because on one hand, we're, we're trying to kind of educate ourselves on the history here, and there is so, so much... Um, but at the same time, not refuel this whole, you know, like kind of looking at it from a fresh perspective rather than saying, oh, we're going back to the Cold right. War, like Red Scare, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it's it's kind of I, I often compared um, covering the Middle East as you have reporters who don't remember covering Iraq and reporters who do remember covering Iraq. And they both look at the national security issues so completely different. Um, and I'm seeing that on the Russia story now, too. Um, and, and both ways of covering the story are, are equally important and contextual and important for the public to read. But it's a really interesting and, um, I think, kind of minefield right. time to be a young reporter on this beat because it's it's hard to, to figure your way through it. I think it makes a lot of sense. I think Mark can probably attest to this, too, as an educator. There was the time in the mid-2000s where you had those that remembered 9-11, and then by the time I uh, finished teaching, which was 2014, I had college students who were not old enough to remember 9-11. They just weren't – you know, you assume that everyone walking around is somewhat conditioned by the memory of 9-11 – but we're now at the point where there are college graduates. This is a depressing topic. I know, let's not I know. even talk about <laughs> so, it. So well, let's move on. But I get what you're, exactly what you're saying. So now's the time. Let's talk about election 2016. Was there an election? There I was an election. I think I've been paying attention. Um, I think I've there was one in, in the, the Gambia, I know. Is that right, one where, right. That worked out The well. Gambian election, that was, it was really interesting. There was no hacking at all. So I'm going to throw a, a lot of, we can talk about whatever stories we want to. There is the Clinton email Controversy. There's the DNC hack in WikiLeaks. There's Russian propaganda. There's Donald Trump versus the intelligence community blaming, saying, why would I listen to these guys? They're the ones that gave us Iraqi WND in 2003. And then, and David really cares about this, all of a sudden briefing from intelligence agencies for the candidates is big news. And I'm sure trying to promote his book, he was very happy that that was something that was being talked about Sorry, a lot. Which, which book are you referring to there? Uh, I don't What's the name of it? Um, I don't you know. Know. Yeah. Uh, We can talk about any or all of these things because I think they all kind of come together. Um, I have personal experience in a couple of them, uh, particularly the DNC hack stuff. Um, but the propaganda side, I think, is one of the most interesting ones. And I'll start that by throwing that out there. And I think that 
there's a whole new generation, as Ali was referring to, that are beginning to understand the old-fashioned Russia playbook that never went anywhere. And if you want to say, you can say the Cold War is long gone, but there is an aspect of the Cold War that never left. And that was this idea of uh, Russia trying to create a narrative uh, that benefits them versus everybody else. Yeah, I mean, that's that, that's true. In a lot of ways, we are seeing more continuity than change. And certainly there are, uh, you know, there's extensive history of Soviet and slash Russian covert action generally, um, also most particularly uh, aimed at the United States. And, you know, historical examples of them trying to mess with U.S. elections. 1976, for instance, um, uh, 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 is particularly well documented. Um, but what's different here is that um, Soviet uh, covert actions against the United States um, have ultimately, in general, not been that effective, per se. Um, and um, particularly, the, you know, the, the, the efforts to influence elections to, you know, pump up one candidate or suppress the, the vote of another were very um, small-scale back in the pre-internet days. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, the internet and social media and all of this has um, created an ability to put, um, you know, the, the, the Russian ideas in the minds of millions and millions and millions of Americans. Now, whether that has an effect at the end of the day on how they vote is literally, at this point, unknowable. And with regard right. to the 2016 election, we don't know the answer and we literally never will. Um, but it is very clear that those Russian messages were getting to huge proportions of the American population, which was not possible before. So there was a dramatic shift that took place here in uh, the actual actions of the Russians during this campaign. There was first a collection operation, which was the hack itself of the DNC by FSB and GRU, we think. Or which, we, which is not in and of itself unprecedented. Like right. Inf no, not at all. Information gathering. It's we what do we it do, right? Yeah, yeah, it's the Chinese stole 30 million uh, records from uh, very top secret records from OPM. The shift, however is what they started doing stuff with it when it became a covert action. It went from collection to covert action. You saw that, Ali, from uh, both the IC, covering the IC, but also from looking at Congress and how they were reacting to it. Mm -hmm. How was that shift? Was that shift understood immediately that it's a whole new ballgame? Or, or was, there, was there a kind of a change in people's perceptions about what had just happened when all of a sudden the covert action element came into play? Um, well, I think, first of all, it wasn't necessarily covert was it right the overt covert um <laughs> but i think it, it was such a fascinating story to watch unfold because people just really didn't know what to do with it i was in philly on the eve of the dnc release you know not the hack um and i think one of one of the ways that this conversation became so toxic so fast is that immediately after it happened, I think Democrats really latched onto the idea that um, the Russians are going to elect Donald Trump, um, which I think if, you know, some time had been, which, I mean, ultimately their take wound up being bolstered by U.S. intelligence, but the fact that it was said so fast, it was clearly a political statement, um, and it's kind of made this a, a massive political hot potato um, to touch. Um, I think there was... I had started hearing not long after the DNC release um, that basically what kind of shifted this conversation was that they only focused on one side of 
the mm-hmm. the specter here is that you know wh- whether they made the same efforts to infiltrate Republican networks, they only released what they had of Democrats. Now I've heard that they they have stuff on out of Republican networks too, but they chose not to release it. Yeah. Um. So I think that is where the the specter then gets raised to an influence right. operation. Um. But I, I think that still people are really unsure how to talk about this without it becoming an absolute political Yeah, it's mess. a politicization of intelligence. But, th- I mean, David, this is really – you've talked about this before. Not, not, not anything new. I mean, politicization of intelligence has been around for a while. No, politicization of intelligence is part of delivering intelligence. And there's, there's this myth of we eliminate politicization. You can't. It's not a disease to be eradicated. It's a condition to be managed. If you're having contact as an intelligence officer with a policymaker, there is the potential – for either explicit or, more often, subtle politicization. And Paul Pilar has written uh, expertly about that, that part. There's nothing necessarily new there. What happened here, though, was that this was happening during the campaign, mm-hmm. and the candidates were getting intelligence briefings at a time when a lot of people were criticizing Donald Trump for his extemporaneous approach, and a lot of people were criticizing Hillary Clinton for being under investigation for careless handling of classified material unprecedented set of factors made these previously under-the-radar, quiet intelligence briefings for candidates become headline news, which probably only snowballed and expanded the interest in what are these stories. It was one of these where they fed on each other throughout the campaign. Very unusual. Yeah, one of the things that I thought was very interesting was the kind of back and forth, especially during this briefing time period, of Donald Trump really versus the intelligence community. Kind of, you know, there was, you know, the all seven, I mean, Hillary Clinton saying all 17 intelligence agencies say that it was the Russians. And then Trump coming back, now President Trump coming back, respect for respects due, with, yeah, but these are the guys that gave us Iraqi WMD in 2003. I think that was a, a story made up by journalists, actually, last he talked about it. I think it's our fault. <laughs> yeah, well, I think we supposedly invented the war between Trump and the intelligence oh. agencies. At least oh, according to what he told the CIA this week. Well, oh, okay. I'm like, oh, I thought I'm like, I just saw some tweets that. No, okay, no, so I mean, I, I right. did too. But so alternative 2016. Yes. Yeah, there, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the interesting part here is yes, there were comments out there that Trump said to reporters saying, you know, I don't trust these guys. I won't use them. They got Iraq wrong. That was out there. What got less reported were some of his comments where he said. These are some very good people giving me briefings, and these are real professionals. When they call them intelligence, it's for a reason. Those didn't fit some narratives, so they didn't get reported as much. But he had this, I know crazy to imagine, but he had this ability to hold both views at the same time and even to express both views within the same long sentence. That was also hard to parse. Well, it was hard to parse when he put intelligence in quotation marks, talking about the intelligence community. But let's, let's take this issue of the same guys who gave us Iraq and WMD. And, and let, let, let's, let's destroy it because it deserves to be beaten like a dead horse. Yes. Uh, because it really ruffled a lot of feathers the for those of us. Come after I know, us. the horse lobby. Uh, I would rather deal with them than have this, this silliness be out there. Yeah, so I mean, a, a few thoughts about that. I mean, first off, it's uh, the, the people who were doing, uh, literally the actual people who did the WMD analysis are, uh, that was basically 15 and more years ago, um, and um, are, we can safely assume, mostly not around. 
um, and not probably working on these sorts of issues anyway. I mean, somebody who was, you know, uh, uh, a mid-career person working at Iraq WMD 15 years ago, why would we expect that they are now, like, ridiculously senior and also involved in working on Russia and cyber? Um, and, and the people whose names we know are basically all gone. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, there may be one or two in, whose names aren't public that are still hanging around. But it's not literally the same people. So that's number one. Number two is... Um, what the comment missed was that the CIA and actually also um, to a substantial degree the intelligence community as such um, really did a whole lot of soul searching about what went wrong here and implemented all sorts of changes in analytic procedure, in training um, and all sorts of you know things about how analysis actually gets done. So the processes are just fundamentally different. And in fact, it has reached the point now where I've heard, and I can't you know uh, confirm or deny this, but I have heard people working as analysts today um, who say that actually it's become excessively difficult to make a call, right? Um, that is taken is that caution mm-hmm. has gone so far. So no, the the. the the, the critique is not valid. There will always be intelligence failures, and while I think it's highly, highly improbable, it's theoretically possible this is one of them, um, but Iraqi WMD failure is irrelevant to this question. Well, the, the dramatic reorganization of the intelligence community, actually creating an entirely new part of the intelligence community, yeah, and that's yeah. the, the 2004 Terrorism Prevention and blah, blah, blah. Yes. Which contains a thing in it which literally defines good analysis, has these you know, yeah. qualities, and then a mandated, legally mandated the establishment of an office in ODNI to, ride, to do quality control on IC analysis. So you talk to people during this time period within the IC, within those working this stuff. Was not during the WMD. No, I know you okay. again. You were <laughs> just, just not, clarifying. I know you were in elementary school, but the um, no during the the Trump kerfuffle. Uh, sorry, the President Trump kerfuffle. I hate when people did it with Obama. I'll do it now. President Trump kerfuffle with the intelligence community. Was it seen the same? Was it as you jokingly said? Was it something that was uh, doled up a little bit by the press, or was there legitimately some hard feelings on the side of the IC? with the way Trump, President Trump, was uh, coming across. Oh, I think there was absolutely some hard feelings. Um, I think maybe not so much hard feelings as concern, just just really underscoring the the running concern that the IC has had with the notion of a President Trump. Um, I think the really interesting shift to me, if I can get all politicky on this, is that... um, It was such an interesting shift to watch because... Suddenly, Democrats, in an effort to hit Trump, were the ones vouching for the CIA when they are usually the ones on the other side of that argument. Um, It it was a very bizarre shift to cover, and it was so grossly political on all sides, at least from the, the lawmaker standpoint, congressional standpoint. It was hard to even find a clear route there. Um, I think a lot of a lot of things from the Hill were tone deaf in the last three months. I don't think it was a surprise that objective intelligence issues were used as political pawns. I, I think the surprise was how quickly that happened. Yeah. It was immediate in a way that there's always people talking about the old days when national security was safe from these political debates, when partisanship stopped at the nation's borders. If you look back, never really true. Yeah, yeah. It's a mythology. Yeah. <laughs> but in this case, it was just so rapid 
that there was almost no time to react and get under it because we were already on to the next one and it became part of the narrative of the election right. campaign. Well, I mean, uh, exactly what you were saying, the idea that the Republicans are defending the Russians and the Democrats are yelling for bringing back the Cold War. Is which, like, yeah, which what is the hell happened? Yeah, yeah, which is, I think, as this has played out and will continue to play out, that's certainly like an, I looked I looked at it that way and now think it's it's a ridiculously oversimplified way to put it. But it is very strange that in the, the very early days of this, it was like a complete political right. bait and switch. For me, closing out on the statements about the Iraq analysis some 15 years later, I I found it a little odd because few things have been investigated more than the Iraq WMD analysis. Mm -hmm. We'd have to, maybe you include the Cuban Missile Crisis, 9-11, the 1973 failure to predict the invasion of Israel, possibly the fall of the Shah of Iran in the 70s, but maybe not even those those get to that level. And no one takes lessons learned more seriously than intelligence analysts who are already skeptical of their own analysis and skeptical of the information they're getting. You had some more skepticism about the meta stuff. Holy crap. Those lessons are going to be internalized. And to say that, well, I don't trust them because 15 years ago they did that, that discounts all of those lessons learned that Mark talked about a moment ago. In fact, if you bring in a whole new team that haven't learned those lessons, you make another Iraq WMD analytic case study much more likely to happen. We will return to this conversation in a moment. But first, let me tell you about gifts like no other for your love like no other. There's no one like your Valentine. This year, treat them to an unforgettable gift that's as unique as they are. Now, for anyone in a long-term relationship, Valentine's Day can be taxing, mainly because you don't want to repeat the same old gifts from years past. The same old, tired, I didn't really try that hard this year, dear gifts. And a gift from Sherry's Berries shows her you put thought into finding the perfect gifts. Now, these berries are decadent, fresh, juicy, sweet, shareable, and irresistible. You can choose berries dipped in tempting white, milk, and dark chocolate goodness. You can also have things topped with chocolate chips, decorative swizzles, and chopped nuts. Surprise her at her office and workplace. Her coworkers are sure to be just a little jealous, and she'll be overjoyed. And you have options. Choose a gift from Sherry's Berries' incredible collection of gifts. Your gift will be perfectly packaged in a gift box with all the details taken care of. Sherry's Berries will deliver your gift fresh and on time, guaranteed, or your money back. And look, I'd like to add something here for our female listeners. This copy is designed to entice men to buy these, but we guys love Sherry's Berries as well. Just saying. So freshly dipped strawberries from Sherry Berries starting at just $19.99 plus shipping, or double the berries for just $10 more. Just go to berries.com and use our code SPYCAST. That's B-E-R-R-I-E-S dot com and use our code SPYCAST. With Valentine's Day right around the corner, there's only one way to get Sherry's Berries starting at $19.99. Again, that's berries.com, B-E-R-R-I-E-S dot com. Click on the microphone in the top right-hand corner and type in SPYCAST. That's berries.com and use our code SPYCAST. By doing this, you can help support our show by supporting our sponsors. Again, use the code SPYCAST. Let's wrap this up by talking a little bit about the conduit with which Russia apparently released this information, which is WikiLeaks. Um, Without getting too political, because we try to stay apolitical here as much as we can, is this something new? Using, well, I mean, hacktivists are new as it is. Um, But is there kind of some kind of historical context here, whether, you know, the release of the Pentagon Papers, perhaps, which is 
you know, done through newspapers. Well, I mean, I, are I you seeing a, something similar to that? I'd go in a slightly different direction and argue that it's not new at all. Um, uh, in that, if you go back to the Cold War, the Soviets liked to put anti-American, anti-Western stories into the media, whether they were true or not, and you know, there was certainly some of both. Um, and um, they were very skilled at uh, at doing that, and sometimes they did it through um, media outlets, newspapers particularly, um, that were witting. Uh, that yes, this is coming from the KGB. I've been, you know, the editor has been bought by the KGB, and other times it was, you know, filtered through a conduit that looked like a legitimate source, and those were unwitting conduits. And so, whichever you want to believe about WikiLeaks, if you think Julian Assange is bought and paid for, you know, by the FSB, there's all kinds of precedent for that in the print era and in the radio mm -hmm. era. And if you think that he's an unwitting pawn of the FSB, which is my personal view, uh, there's lots of precedent for that. I mean, the difference is not in the mechanism. Uh, of, you know, getting this stuff to them. The difference is the reach right. of, of WikiLeaks versus the reach of, you know, some, you know, newspaper, you know, hard copy newspaper back in 1950s. Yeah, it's a different medium for, for, for doing things like that. But the fact of this kind of information being, con no, to me, I always look for the historical precedent. And, I mean, this is the historian's roundtable, right, that we're pretending to be? Yeah. 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 So I always look for that. And As a political scientist, we, we were allowed you to come on here. Yeah, I, I played a historian in my book, uh -huh. but I, I'm not actually one. But I, I, I think we make so much of what's new and what's different, we don't even reflect to say, what have we learned in the past about similar things? More of that would be helpful to get a sense of, this has happened before, how could we avoid making the same mis mistakes and overreacting to it? That said, I think speed is a part of it. The fact that you could have so many documents released so quickly mm -hmm. and then distributed more widely. That is the new part, and that's what Ali talked about earlier in terms of how did that affect the campaign in terms of these materials being put out at the time of someone else's choosing instead of slowly filtering out. Uh, just briefly, I think there's an additional phenomenon on top of that, and it's more of a cultural phenomenon. And I think um, we're, we're in an era, uh, in the West at least, where there's a perception that if something was kept secret, it is um, ipso facto, you know, uh, juicy, uh, juicy yeah, and, 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 yeah. and, and, and ev evidence of malfeasance, right? Um, so with WikiLeaks, we see this, for instance, um, where, you know, you, you release, you know, hundreds of thousands of State Department cables and supposedly this shows all sorts of horrible stuff. And well, there, there are maybe one or two or three scandalous things there, but mostly it's just mundane diplomatic traffic, which mostly is what the State Department said they were doing. Right. But boy, it, it looks really bad because this was secret, right? And, and so you get, so the Soviets, sorry, the Russians, there I go, um, can get some degree of sort of added knock-on effect, uh, even when there's no actually there there. I mean, a lot of this D these DNC emails, not really really very interesting. No, I agree. The yeah. cultural part of it that links back to the first part of this conversation about Apple and FBI is, is really interesting because there's the privacy security debate that's happening there. And many people saying, how dare the government look into what I'm doing on my iPhone? And they are often the same people who quickly look at some of these stolen emails and say, ooh, what's this? Right. Yes, there's a difference. Maybe there is some Pentagon Papers type aspect to some of the State Department cables that were released. I question that, but perhaps. But then it's only a matter of months later when Colin Powell's emails were stolen, private property stolen, put out there, and you have people writing headlines about these things that have nothing to do with government malfeasance. It's just to say, oh, look, he said something nasty about someone in right. this election from stolen property and how quickly the American culture went from 
my privacy is so sacred to, oh, but somebody else's emails were hacked. Let's read them and find the salacious details. So you're the journalist that's giving out all these salacious details and making us all drool I, over I the I mean, I th this is going to be <laughs> written about in journalism textbooks far beyond my place in this hmm. career. Yeah, not many, but we like to pretend that we Short actually articles. have a structure. Um, I think to, to David's Is point, it listicles like BuzzFeed? Yeah. Uh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. I, that's, that's probably what we're getting to, Vince. Sorry. No. Um, <laughs> I, I will say, I will say, in all seriousness, two years ago, we would not have somebody from BuzzFeed here. Just like three years ago, somebody from Huffington Post would not walk in the door. But both of those have now become incredibly good organizations. Thank and, you. Yeah, so... I just want to throw that out there because, yes, the joke used to be if you wanted to see cats falling off stuff, go to BuzzFeed or Huffington Post. Now they're doing hard-hitting. You, real, real, you can't find those there You can anymore. still find you those there. You can still find those. I'm yeah. still trying to figure Thank out you. a way to write a BuzzFeed CIA cat story. It will happen at some time. Write down the We will show you next door. And so stay tuned. Get, yeah, okay. So go um, ahead. Sorry. So I think to David's point with the, the use of WikiLeaks, um, which I, I think – plays into what you said historically like this has obviously been a, a tactic by a lot, yeah. the then soviets russians um but i think that the use of wikileaks and the speed with which those spread um if you look at you know wikileaks versus a news org like the new york times or the washington post which has historically been the the place that that people leak things go um these emails got out so much faster and so much more quickly and widely shared than they ever would have if they were given to a newspaper because um, if you think of what a newspaper would have done with them or any news organization what buzzfeed would have done with them if we had gotten them um you know how on earth do you verify that these are real emails how do you you know verify that they're even coming from the place you know you, how right. do you uh, like vet that source. Um, so WikiLeaks doesn't hold itself to those same standards, no. which is obviously a journalism debate over whether WikiLeaks is this massive pillar of journalistic integrity that it says it is. Um, so I think the use of WikiLeaks here kind of changed the ballgame in a lot of ways. And I, I, there is this weird thread of, of left-leaning, whether it's media types or even just democratic politicians who say, you know, these are stolen emails they shouldn't have been reported on. Um, the threshold for newsworthiness was beyond met. Yeah. Um, but one thing that just irked me and continues to irk me through this whole thing is that they're called leaked emails. They were not leaked. They were stolen. Yes. They yeah. were stolen and then, yep. you know, released Dumped. somewhere. Yeah. Um, and, and, the, and calling it leaked emails, which so many news organizations and, and maybe even mine did throughout the course of this, is so dangerous to the incredibly important notion of, of leaking right. and, and the press and what that actually means. And that conflation of whistleblowers and leakers and everything yes, is something that, which that's is really problematic. Versus hackers. Right, hackers I mean, too. There are so many, people say it's a lot of gray areas. It's not. There are very clear lines in this and there so many of them were just bled together in this. And we'll, just looking back, if you think of Watergate as an example of this, and, and there is a, a great, you know, the DNC being stole, information being stolen from the DNC is really great. It's I mean, beautiful symbolism. Right. Well, it is really symbolism. And in the DNC basement, they have a filing cabinet that was broken into during Watergate. And now next to it, they actually for a picture they did in a journal, there is the servers. So, like, the two are kind of things together. But the idea is that the Washington Post, for months, did research about Watergate. 
I mean, Woodward and Bernstein, every, a lot of people know the story. If you don't, go watch the movie at least, but read up on it. The idea is that they verify, they vetted, they talked to sources, they did all this stuff before they actually put anything out. And it wasn't a giant dump. It yeah. was year. It was yeah. months worth of stories of incremental development. Right. And the, the pa- I think, honestly, audiences' patience for that is part of the reason that they've you know, flocked more towards a WikiLeaks than, than a legacy news org. So let's wrap this up by doing something fun. Um, we're not going to hold anybody to anything they're about to say. Uh, we disavow everything. We're going to, I'm going to ask you to make bold, but probably not a chance in hell they're going to happen predictions for 2017 in the intelligence world. Just a particular one. Just throw out something that is, if you get it right, uh, we'll, we'll hold you up to the highest standard and we'll, we'll, we'll celebrate you from the hills. But more than likely, this this is not going to happen. But let, let's give it a shot. So let's start with David. What is your bold 2017 intelligence prediction? In 2017, the International Spy Museum will be nationalized by the Trump administration. Oh, God. No. <laughs> <laughs> but, but seriously. Uh, uh, you uh, win. Yeah. Yeah. Ser- seriously, I, I will predict that the Vice President of the United States, currently Mike Pence, uh, will become a more important intelligence customer than any previous vice president, uh, perhaps other than Al Gore, who had his own second yeah. President's Daily Brief printed just for him. We could see a return to that, building on the fact that he had daily briefings throughout the transition, whereas the president-elect did not. Okay. Mark? My low-probability, high-impact scenario, to use a little uh, analyst speak there, is CIA Director Mike Pompeo out before the end of the year. Well, okay. Well, last year. All right. Out for a walk or out <laughs> resigning? Not, I'm not talking about with the dog. Uh, either resigned or fired. Okay. Well, that's that's hedging, but we'll let you hedge. All right. I like the notion of that because I think the 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 real deal with these cabinet picks are every one of them has signed up knowing that they will eventually have to fall on the sword. So it's a question of what I think Pompeo that's probably will right, have to. Yeah. <laughs> Can I do a more like realistic prediction? Sure. Okay. Oh, ouch. Less bold. Less bold. Um, I'm biased, but I think um, that there will be a pivot of the public back towards real, hard-hitting national security reporting. That would be nice. And I think there's a huge level of distrust in that right now, and I think it's it's partly justified. um, Because I think you're seeing national security is the hot issue right now, and everybody wants to cover it, national security reporters, political reporters, et cetera. and I think you, the deliberate, patient nature of good national security reporting has been forgotten right now and in the last three months. And I think that in the next year, the public's going to realize how very important it is and that people in the federal government are going to realize I, how important I respect it is. that. And I'll, and I'll add one more prediction to that, which is to enable that to happen, uh, I predict that Ellie Watkins will successfully <laughs> merge the cat reporting <laughs> yes. and the intelligence reporting in a breakthrough story in terms of bold prediction. As long as friend. we're invited to your Pulitzer Prize. Uh, Meow. Yes. <laughs> so, all right, so I'm going to figure it out with an actual real bold prediction. Um, it actually might be what Mark was talking about, but I think someone very, very high in the administration, it could be CIA director, it could be Mike Pence, the jump off of both of yours, uh, will have to resign because of faked, leaked documents. Because of documents that are leaked but aren't real, that someone has made to look like real, but they are complete nonsense. I think that is 2017 is going to be the year where someone's going to have to go down because of nonsense, because we're so good now 
And that was the big fear of this year, of course, was the idea that within the 99% of true documents that were dumped, there would be a document here or there like, oh, here's Hillary Clinton's call with Osama bin Laden, right, you know, where they're talking about <laughs> going forward. So I that think – That was fiction, just to be clear. Right, yes, that never happens. <laughs> never happens. I mean, that's a pretty high specter if a intelligence-ish document suggesting a particular golden – showers tape has not yet forced anyone out the That's door. That's a bold prediction. I don't see that happening. <laughs> no, you don't think so? <laughs> like, well, what are we talking about in this pseudo-intelligence, non-intelligence document? But, I don't um, even know if we want to go down this road. No, no. I mean, right? in, in all seriousness, I think what, what we'll get somebody is like a shady financial deal or a uh, like a back alley deal with Iran or something like that or, you know, something that shows like their company worked with Al Qaeda. I mean, it, 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 more believable. it needs to be believable, right? Yeah. I mean, the the silly. I mean, if the Trump the Trump thing's pretty believable, but it's not necessarily something that's gonna. And if nothing has thwarted his rise to this point, I don't think anything else. But because he's he's got a cult of personality, right? Trump seems to be somewhat bulletproof because of that cult of personality. No one else. Maybe Jim Mattis has that going for him because he's kind of known as, you know. But even that's a distant second. But even that's a But no one else. I mean, Mike Pence is seen as this very conservative but very down the middle as far as no crazy skeletons in the closet. Somebody who's kind of righteously, you know, good if you like that, terrible if you don't stay on that side of the political spectrum. But somebody who's not crooked. I think if something came out where he was secretly crooked, even if it was nonsense, people would turn on him very, very quickly. Uh, so the prediction would be a Spiro Agnew type of moment where the vice president's forced to resign, except Spiro Agnew is guilty as sin. You know, Pence perhaps would be a person who certainly wouldn't be, but something fake would come out. Because the only that. problem with that, Vince, is dropping Spiro Agnew to end the podcast makes people long for cats. Cats. <laughs> yeah. All right, folks, let me thank our three guests, Mark Stout, who you all know. You should go check out a bunch of the podcasts that he did a couple years ago. Um, they're not quite as exciting, but they're interesting. Um, he has far less hair than he did at the time, but he's still there oh, kicking. Uh, he's not at David Priest, who is um, very sexually shaved in that case. Uh, you, you should definitely take a look at his book, The President's Book of Secrets, The Untold Story of Intelligence Briefings to America's President from Kennedy to Obama, now out on paperback, I believe. Paperback in about two weeks. Well, in a week after you hear this, it'll be out on paperback. It's definitely worth a grab because... Uh, he pretends he's a historian. He does a damn good job of it, even though he's a political scientist. And then Allie Watkins, we'd like to thank you for coming back and doing SpyCast. Uh, check out her writings for BuzzFeed, but also go back and take a look at the stuff she did for HuffPo. Really great reporter. Uh, and for people in her field, calling her a reporter uh, is probably the biggest compliment. And that's one of the reasons. I didn't tell the story on here on air, if you want to call it that, of why I grabbed her in the first place about a year and a half ago. A very close friend of the two of ours said, there's no one who's more of a hardcore reporter than Allie Watkins. And to me, and I think to her, that's a huge compliment. And it shows in everything that she writes. The she just digs and digs is a and digs. difficult one to crack, yeah. but I will keep trying. All right, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. We'd like to thank Blue Apron and ZipRecruiter for their continued support of SpyCast and give a special welcome to the SpyCast family to Sherry's Berries. Remember, you can check out this week's BlueApron.com menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to BlueApron.com slash SpyCast. You can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash first. And you can get freshly dipped strawberries from Sherry's Berries starting at just $19.99 plus shipping or double the berries for just $10 more. Go to berries.com and use our code SPYCAST. 
Thank you for joining us on SpyCast. Every Tuesday, we'll give you the most interesting conversations with some of the most intriguing people in the world of intelligence. If you'd like to send us a comment or suggestion, you can email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Or tweet us at intlspycast. That's I-N-T-L-S-P-Y-C-A-S-T. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.